Gradebook, a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. It is June 22nd, which is a Thursday, just after 2.30 in the afternoon. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, here with reporter Colleen Wright. Hello, Colleen. How are you today? Hi, Jeff. I'm good. How are you doing? Doing great, and I'm watching with fascination the story that you've been covering on this charter school founder who has been indicted on fraud charges. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, this is a story that uh, is at least one year, almost two years uh, in the making. Um, Last year, I did a story about this um, uh, charter school, for-profit charter school management company called New Point Education Partners. Uh, And how I got turned on to it was this little $75,000 grant that was mishandled. Uh, It was a federal grant, and you know, it wasn't returned, and they didn't have documentation. Well, I kept following them and following them, and I realized that the bigger, you know, issue at play here was um, there were these two other, these two vendors, Recognition and School Warehouse. They were selling um, items and furniture to the charter schools, and New Point had 15, you know, not all at once, but over uh, seven or eight years or so, 15 charter schools throughout six Florida school districts. Um, uh, there were five, just in Pinellas alone. There was one in Hillsborough, and they were selling uh, these two vendors, uh, warehouse and recognition, were selling these items that were way marked up. We're talking iPads for five hundred dollars and beanbag chairs for ninety nine dollars. Just you know, too, way too expensive. Obviously, marked up things, but of course, the owner, my reporting found that the uh, owner of New Plan Education Partners uh, was associated with these businesses. Um, and it was kind of like this circular connection. Uh, New Point, as long as with those two businesses, were uh, indicted uh, by a grand jury for um, white-collar crime, uh, money laundering, and grand theft. The businesses were, and just this week, Marcus May, the founder himself, and Stephen Kunkemuller, who owned uh, Red Edition and School Warehouse, um, both had warrants out for their arrest. Um, it's estimated that Marcus May, uh, the big guy in charge, um, pretty much pocketed more than $1 million. And nobody notices Nobody noticed this over time? Or was this something that you guys, as reporters covering it in the various counties, found first? Yeah, I, you know, I, I was reporting on this, and as, you know, I was reporting on it kind of little by little, a prosecutor from the Sandia County called me and said, hey, we're looking at this too. And I came out with my story anyway, and what was found in the I think it was like 13, 14 page affidavit that came out on Monday was that it was pretty correct. And, and what I, you know, what I reported was pretty spot on. Um, of course, prosecutors have more access to bank accounts and things that I can't get to, but it sounded like the damage was even, even worse. I mean, they, it's, it's not even, uh, you know, selling things for inflated goods and, you know, that excess money was profited. I mean, they got, Marcus May got kickbacks from it. They, um, fraudulently submitted, uh, grant proposals, like, for um, charter school, you know, startups, they said, you know, that there were 350 students from really only 200 some students were going, and so the schools would get more money because they thought, you know, the Fed thought more kids were going there, but really, in reality, they weren't. Um, and, and they paid off; they took this money and paid off $11,000 in um, plastic surgery. They paid down, you know, 63 some thousand dollars for a down payment on a home. They paid off mortgages, credit card bills, trips to a dozen countries, you know, throughout 
Asia, Europe, and uh, the Caribbean. Uh, I mean, they just went haywire. And now, uh, you know, as the latest we know is that Stephen Tenkamola, um, the vendor, the owner of the vendors, uh, actually turned himself in. He was booked into Escambia County Jail. Uh, he was released minutes later um, out on bail. There's been the question, like, these charter school operators, they sometimes close and then they pop up again in another location, sometimes with just a different name. You said that when you were looking at the law, that it looks like they've changed it so that like repeat offenders can't just come back again. What are you seeing in there? Well, you know, it, it's important to, you know, uh, distinguish here that Marcus May came from Ohio. He ran um, national companies that they were very similar called Cambridge Education Group. Um, and those, you know, that group kind of came from Flathead Management, which is, if you look them up, you know, a lot of papers in Ohio have reported on them too. But I believe the law, and I believe this went into effect last year, um, 2016, says that if a charter school goes to, uh, up, uh, if an application is turned to start a charter school, they must disclose who, you know, what for-profit company would be managing them if, if they are picking a management company. And then uh, how many schools that they, you know, what are the schools that they've ran, where are they? And if they closed, why? More you know, that gives school um, board members who have to approve these charters um, a little bit more leeway on really digging into their past and making a decision on that. Because before, you know, if you don't ask for something, you don't really have the grounds. And I mean, you could look it up on your own. But at least now, like it's it's part of the application. School board members have to look at it, and they can make a more informed decision this way. It's interesting, though, that as the story came out, we're seeing a lot of people who have been critics of House Bill 7069, the big bill that does so many things, including creating new paths for new charter schools to come into Florida, are picking up on this story and saying, see, this is what happens if you have unfettered access to charter schools and they have access to all this money. One of the things that was noticeable in that bill was that certain language didn't ever appear. We had conversations over the course of a year after reports from Associated Press, we've looked into it too about charter schools that that would rent their own properties from a different wing of their own operation and pay for it. That there was supposed to be in this legislation, there was discussion of having a private enrichment, personal private enrichment ban, so that the owners, operators, and others affiliated with the charter schools would not be allowed to make money off of the state in this regard. But that language never made it into House Bill 7069. Now people are using your story as an example of why House Bill 7069 is just another way in for more charter schools to to rob the state. Are you hearing a lot of complaints, concerns from people um, who are watching this and, and, and maybe even salivating over it. Yeah, there's been a lot of comments on the stories that, you know, feel that way, too. Um, you know, it's important, I think, to say that Newpoint, I think, is the most extreme example that I've ever seen, because any way they could have cut a corner, they did. And, um, you know, they were pretty sloppy criminals about it, too. I mean, I'm not an investigator, but I found, you know, a lot of the stuff. And to get away with stealing $1 million, you know, that's a big deal. Um, I think bigger thing here is that, you know, I kind of see charter schools as something like it was a game and the rules are made up as you go along, you know, and, and, you know, like for Newpoint and, and the 900 students or so who were misplaced because, you know, all five of those schools or four of the five schools in Pinellas, you know, shut down and these kids were displaced. Um, it's, it's unfair for them. And there weren't a whole lot of rules about oversight. It's supposed to lie with the nonprofit board. Um, but who knows who's, who's on the nonprofit board? I mean, the management company can do whatever they want in there. Really, there's not a whole lot of rules uh, regulating that. And, 
you know, I would be shocked if another um, management company could come and do the same kind of damage that Newpoint did. But even even if it's on a smaller scale, you know, it, it still wouldn't be right. I think you know for someone to abuse it, you know, abuse things the same way Newpoint did. It's fascinating too because I, you know, the vote in the Senate on the House bill was very close, and one of the senators, Senator George Gaynor, today put out a statement that basically said what he re- what he referred to during debate, that he was concerned about the inequitable um, playing field for charters and for traditional schools. And he actually said that he thought charter schools get to do, get away with too much and he wanted a more even playing field. And now he's just issued a warning saying that something must be done with the legislation throughout the state of Florida to make sure that charter schools and traditional schools face the same kind of oversight. And this is probably another reason why. Yeah, and you know, and to that point, um, you know, I, the winter schools they, they didn't last very long. They had only been around for like four. I think the oldest one was like five, six years. Some were, you know, younger than that, like four years, two years. Um, and and they also like weren't super high performing. They're very like CDF level. Um, but you know, when when I covered Windsor Prep closing last year and East Windsor Mill Academy closing last year, a lot of parents said that it wasn't fair that their school was closing, but schools and, you know, uh, South St. Pete, often referred to as the failure factories, they could get Fs five, six years in a row and nothing happened to them. So, you know, I I think that they kind of bring up an interesting point and, and you know, it'd be interesting to see if maybe one day the playing fields could just kind of even out and everybody's, you know, in, in the same boat. Because on that token, you know, uh, University Preparatory Academy, which opened up in South St. Pete to serve the students in that, you know, failure factories, quote-unquote, area, um, they folded three years and out, three Fs and, and, and you're out. So um, I think that, yeah, there's there's a bigger issue here when it comes to accountability. Well, Colleen, I think that you're going to have a big story to follow in the trial. And so I, I appreciate you taking the time to stop and talk with us at the podcast where you should be more often talking with us about a whole variety of issues. I'm happy to come on anytime, Jeff. Well, thank you very much. We'll talk again soon. Now Marlene Sokol, our, our Hillsborough County education reporter, is joining us here at, at the Gradebook, and we're going to talk about the budgetary issues that school districts are facing after the Florida legislature has set its new budget for the coming year. Hillsborough County is facing a whole bunch of issues, and Marlene, you've been following it for quite some time, and I understand they're not all related simply to what's happening in Tallahassee. No, even if we're if life were normal in Tallahassee, and I don't know how we define normal, um, Hillsborough County has its own specific budget issues that were uncovered about two years ago, and and they've been struggling with this for two years, and they still have not made enough headway in trying to you know figure out how to spend their money in a way that that it evens with what's coming in. What does that tie into? Is it because they had so much money tied up in grants and then the money disappeared? Exactly. Um, A lot of it was with the Gates grant, um, which, you know, that relationship ended in 2016. Um, And then a similar grant, the Wallace grant, that was supposed to help them recruit and train principals. And then various other grants over the years, magnet school grants, um, a grant for advanced academics, Um, that, you know, that they use to buy much of the material from the college board. So many, many grants, a lot of bureaucracies that grew up um, around these programs that were funded by grants, and then the grant goes away and you still have your bureaucracy. And what they've done traditionally over the years 
rather than let somebody go when the funding runs out, they find a place for them somewhere. Um, a perfect example of this, just the other week, they had a position called the Principal Coach, and that was funded by the Wallace Foundation grant, and that money ran out about a year ago. So what do you do with these principal coaches and their longtime district employees? They earn about $100,000 each. Well, Jeff Akins made them area principal coaches, which is a hybrid between a principal coach, I'm getting in the weeds here, and somebody who helps the area superintendent. This was somewhat controversial. Um, one board member, April Griffin, pushed back against it because she said, you know, we're in a financial crisis. We don't know how we're going to pay our teachers, but here we have these jobs that you could argue they are a luxury. And you're talking about, it sounds like, more than one person. Weren't these grants were like millions of dollars, right? Yes. Um, with, with the Gates grant, that was $100 million. Well, it was hoped to be $100 million. It ended up being $80 million. And, and that's the most extreme example because... <clears throat> that created a huge bureaucracy, um, 277 peer evaluators and mentors, and it also led to an increase in teacher salaries, a pay plan that, that cost a lot of money. The, the pay plan still exists. Some of those extra jobs have been converted into other jobs like mentors, but the headcount is still very high. I mean, the headcount in the Hillsborough County School District increased by close to 25%. Well, not the headcount. Let me scratch that, um, rephrase that. The payroll, the amount of money paid to employees, grew by more than 20% during those years. And the student population grew by about 8%. So, wow. yeah, salaries rose, headcount rose, and people are still finding a place to land within the district. Almost no layoffs. And so even though Hillsborough County stands to receive additional funding from the legislature, just because it's a growing district, those millions of dollars that they'll be getting extra will not come close then to covering the amount that they're trying to cut. No, and it's also offset by things like they have to pay more money for um, the retirement system, more money for insurance. Um, yes, there is student growth, and nobody knows how many of those students are going to go into charter schools. So they, they, they really don't consider what's coming from Tallahassee as a gift. It, it might be a break-even. And again, their own internal problems um, are, you know, that more than makes up for it. So then how are they trying to resolve these problems? Are they, are they just firing people? No, nobody, no, to my knowledge, no one's being fired. They eliminated one very small department, the Department of um, Construction and Building Management. That was 10 people who lost their jobs because at that time they were not building any schools. But for the most part, um, they reduced jobs through attrition. They move people around. Um, there's a hiring freeze right now. About 1,000 jobs are frozen, 500 teaching and 500 outside the classroom. And the reason they did this hiring freeze was so they could see, okay, which of these jobs do we really need to fill and which are not really needed because of low enrollment and whatnot. And so far they've discovered that 100 of the teaching vacancies they don't really need to fill those jobs, so they'll take them off the books. 
So they, they, they try to do what they can through attrition, through transfers. And then obviously, if, if your job goes away and you don't like the job that you've been offered instead, you know, then you can go away voluntarily. What about for raises and stuff like that? Every year we hear districts talking about how much can we give our teachers to keep them here. It sounds like there's no money that would be available for raises under this scenario. Yeah, that's a very explosive issue right now. And the teachers are, 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 some of them are very upset. We're hearing from them because the pay plan that was adopted during the years of Gates called for teachers to get a $4,000 raise every three years, um, which adds up to a lot of money. It can, it can be easily $15 million, $17 million ju- just to aw- award those raises. Um, the district is sending signals out that they really don't have that kind of money. Um, they're, they're hinting that the teachers, some of the teachers are paid too much relative to other school districts. The teachers are arguing back saying, no, we are not overpaid and we are due that money. You know, there was a commitment to us to honor that pay plan. So that's going to be the subject of negotiations. Negotiations with the teachers' union begin next Thursday. Um, The union's going to argue that not only do they deserve this money, but it's in the best interest of students because you want the best quality teachers in front of your students. But anyway, that's that's not a happy subject right now in, in this district. Do you know how the salaries compare to other districts? Because I know from talking to people in the surrounding areas that they would love to go work for Hillsborough, but now it sounds like Hillsborough is not going to be hiring anybody. And in fact, we may start seeing teachers having to go the other way. Well, uh, the starting salaries are relatively low in district. It's 38,200. Um, other, you know, nearby districts start you at about 40,000. Um, once you get up to 15 years, 20 years in, then the Hillsborough salaries are considerably higher. Um, in some cases, $10,000 higher. So for a more experienced teacher, you get to that higher pay level faster in Hillsborough. Now, in terms of will they be hiring, um, that's an interesting question. One thing that the superintendent said the other day was, in some areas, well, they're going to hire very conservatively, and in a school that may see the impact of a charter school opening nearby, you know, where they predict that the enrollment's not going to be so high, they may start out with substitute teachers, Kelly subs, um, and that way you hire a substitute teacher, and you know they want to avoid laying anybody off. So now, if I were a parent, I'm not sure how I would feel about my child starting off the year with a substitute teacher. But I don't know how much hiring they're going to do, and, and much is going to depend on enrollment and then charters. That that is the big question because we're supposed to get something like 11 charters opening this year. And you don't know until the kids get here how many will be in charters and how many will be in district schools. Have the people in the district said anything about how they see the changes to Title I funding affecting this overall picture? Because I know that the district level money will be shrinking and they've already talked about things like the programs that they can no longer afford at the district level because that money will be out at the schools instead. 
Yeah, they're asking, as with other districts, they're asking for a, a one-year grace period while they make the adjustment. Um, the very unfortunate thing about that in Hillsborough is Hillsborough County only recently finished a very elaborate system of allocating what they call supplemental units, um, your reading coach and your math specialist and your dropout prevention specialist, which we call a success coach. And they had just finished a very elaborate formula of placing these, these employees, many of whom are paid by Title I, in the schools that need them the most based on things like the dropout rate and the suspension rate. And, you know, so it was very scientific. And now they're being told, no, you don't have that leeway. You know, you have to give so much to the schools and any school with 60% poverty rate, you know, has to get the money. So they're having to undo a lot of very hard work. Um, So, yeah, it's going to affect them not only in terms of dollars, but in terms of what they can do with those dollars and what types of programs they might have to dismantle. And we we should probably remind everybody that Hillsborough is the eighth largest district in the country. And what is it in the state? Third, fourth? Third largest in the state. And out of the schools that were targeted um, as uh, for schools of hope, the charter schools that were supposed to come in and replace, you know, the poor performing schools, Hillsborough County has 12 of those. And that's another shoe that it, we're waiting for it to drop because there are 12 schools in Hillsborough that, according to this new state law, you know, the kids are supposed to be offered a charter school option nearby. But nobody knows how that's going to work. Nobody knows when that's going to happen. And, of course, that could come up and be revisited um, later on in the year. So this is just a, a Florida story writ large in Hillsborough County. And I'm sure people all around the state are experiencing some degree of not the crazy grant-driven stuff, but all the rest of the things. And um, so it's a good case study. The only difference, I just want to make one more point, the difference in Hillsborough compared to some of the other school districts, um, Hillsborough also has massive amounts of debt. And Hillsborough has not yet gone to the voters and asked for, you know, a, a sales tax to support the schools. I don't know when that will happen. There are people in the community who very much want that to happen because the level of debt in Hillsborough is another big problem. It's why it's so hard to get the air conditioners repaired in a timely manner. And so you're hearing people saying, okay, let's go to the taxpayers and ask for some relief in the form of a sales tax. Well, Marlene, I know that you're going to keep close eye on it and you're going to have to come back and talk with us some more about this because this is is the story that keeps on giving. Unfortunately, yes. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks, Marlene. Before we end the podcast, we always like to talk about some smaller stories that capture our attention but haven't made it into the main conversation. Today, I'd just like to focus for a brief minute on uh, Vero Beach High School student J.P. Krause, who found himself in a bit of hot water with his school because he made a speech during his run for student council president that really offended a couple of people in the school, but mostly was considered to be humorous. The school had disqualified him, saying that he was no longer eligible to run. Now it's been reported that he is eligible, and they withdrew his penalty, saying that he really did nothing wrong, and the fact is that he actually won the post by a landslide, and he will be the new student body president for the coming year. So congratulations, JP. Your story went viral all over the country and possibly even the world, and we're paying attention to it here too. 
Um, that's the end of our podcast. If you want to join the conversation on these issues or any others, please visit our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. You can always follow our blog for the latest breaking news at tampabay.com slash gradebook. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and I've been with reporters Marlene Sokol and Colleen Wright, and we thank you for listening. Thank you.